Hello and welcome to A Cry for Kelp with me, Nick Williams, where we interview the movers and shakers of the seaweed industry. Today on the pod, we have David Lawson from CH4 Global, a fantastic company that uses the asparagopsis seaweed to produce a feed for livestock that can actually reduce their methane emissions. David has over 25 years of R&D experience at Procter & Gamble in multiple disciplines and across different categories. He also has an MSc in tropical medicine from the University of Tübingen and a PhD in molecular biology from the Max Planck Institute. If that wasn't enough, as well as being CTO of CH4, he is the assistant professor at the University of Delaware and director of the Ratcliffe Eco Entrepreneurship Fellows Program, which provide graduate students with tuition support and stipends to pursue ideas for entrepreneurial solutions to environmental problems. So a seriously impressive person who is gracious enough to find time in his busy schedule to talk to the prod. We discussed how CH4 works, where he thinks the industry is going, and what areas are ripe for innovation. So without further ado, let's talk to David. Hello, David. Thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. Nice to meet you, Nick. You too, sir. I'm going to dive right in. We, we are talking about your company today, but uh, I first I want to go back a bit and ask a little bit about your business uh, and academic journey. I know that you uh, have a PhD in molecular biology, so you're obviously terribly stupid, and you've also got a uh, MSc in tropical medicine. Um, what led you from that to where you are now? I think so. I was privileged to have uh, studied science at Glasgow University. I'm a zoologist originally, and as you mentioned, master's degree uh, in Germany in tropical medicine and then molecular biology. Um, but I decided not to go into academia. I was very interested in how you can take technology and translate that into actual products and was privileged to join Procter & Gamble in Germany at the time. So I started with them uh, in 1991, and it was about taking the science uh, that we know and converting it into amazing products. And so that was really my passion that I did for the next 27 years uh, all around Europe for the first 10 years, and then ultimately in the US for the next 15 years and globally, looking to see how we could take technology and science and translate that into the desirable products that everyone uses today. So that was sort of my background. I see. And when did it start moving towards... um into the climate change world uh when it when when was most importantly when was your kind of light bulb moment that there was a, a problem out there that needed solving and how did you maneuver your career either at png or afterwards yeah i mean sustainability was always a big uh issue and focus at procter and gamble and got more urgent maybe in the last 10 years uh, consumers were demanding that and so a lot of the focus that we put on the materials we were looking at was around sustainability, recycling, reusability. Um, I actually had an assignment for about three years based out of San Francisco. We were working on the concept, what happens if there's more clever people outside the company than inside? Could we tap into them? And I led an organization called Connect to Develop that was about tapping into entrepreneurs to help internal innovation at Procter & Gamble. And so that was probably the first moment when I started meeting, this is probably 2011, 2014, people in San Francisco area who were working on renewable, sustainable materials. So instead of petroleum-derived materials, could you take biological pathways, and this was the very early days of algae, that got me into the early days of algae, and use algae uh, and different cellulosic materials to make surfactants, adhesives, resins, and materials that were relevant to Procter & Gamble for packaging and putting into the products. 
And so that was the first time I saw incubators, startups, venture capitalists investing in this space and got super interested in it. For a myriad of reasons, a lot of that didn't come through, and that's a separate topic probably, mainly around the scalability of these platforms. But I remember that vividly. was privileged to retire from P&G about four years ago now and moved to the coast. So I'm on the coast of Delaware now in, in the U.S., and uh, there's the Marine Biology Institute at the University of Delaware. And so that sort of was another connection back to my academic background, back to marine biology, and of course, back to climate. And Delaware is the lowest state in the US. So when any flooding happens, it will happen in Delaware first. And so there was a lot of internal discussions at the university, how to manage that. Um, and I thought maybe we could use some of the tools of PNG and some of our climate change work and do something together. So that was my interest in that area. And the last thing I'll say is, I think a high school student today can repeat the first two years of my PhD in about a week. <laughs> so that's how fast molecular biology has come. Wow. You know, we were sequencing the human genome was taking us years and billions of dollars that can be done today in about a week for a thousand dollars. I felt there was an amazing intersection of academia, advances in science, advances in and an urgency around climate change that we should be working in this space. It, the molecular biology, I mean, you know, you, you spoke earlier about taking and going, not staying in academia and going into Portugal and then, then seeing the startup world. What has been your uh, understanding of the, of, of the interaction between academia and uh, startups, startups specifically, not big business, startups, people trying to get things off the ground because I've worked in startups before and, and you know, it's often very hard to just get that first bit over the ledge because you're often trying to get money to prove that there's a market and then you're going to go and get some more money once you prove the market. Yes. With with something that's, that's as, as big, uh, as was um, as capital hungry as science can be, what has been your experience about like trying to go out and get money and uh, and build teams uh, around that of the right of the right expertise? So my my personal experience has been there's no shortage of money. There are shortages of good ideas, um, and once the good ideas percolate up, there's enough people that have enough money to go and invest in them. And so a lot of the experience we had it. So so the the transition from university to a startup. Um, it was, it was very difficult. Maybe 20 years ago, it was not the focus area of universities. They were designed to do basic research and focus on that. Uh, today, there's a lot of appetite in the academic world to do translational research, to take basic research and turn it into something, a product that people can actually use. And so a lot of the students are demanding that. In fact, one of the programs that you, you referenced in my background, this Ratcliffe Eco Entrepreneurship Fellows Program I run at the University of Delaware, in addition to other things I do, is exactly that, is about taking a project that a student is working on and turning it into a startup company. Um, and so that is a, a whole nother topic. But I've never found that there's a shortage of money. There's a shortage of finding the right idea, a good idea, and then people can rally behind that. And well, it sounds like this, this program is, is, is ideal for, for, for the environmental entrepreneurs specifically. But I'd love to jump in uh, about CH4 now and understand uh, 
I, I've given it a bit of background in the introduction, but I'd love to know, and obviously you can't tell me the, the trade secrets, but how effective is asparagopsis taxiformis or the, all the asparagopsis um, plants? Are they at, sorry, they're not plants, animals, um, at, uh, at dealing with methane? And how did who, who found that out? Where was that information first realised that it could work with cowbirds? Who, who thought, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give this to some cows. That seems like a big jump to me. Yeah, so a, lot, so a lot of the fundamental work, and, and I, I'm not an expert in the initial days of how this was done, but there was a, a, a Dr. Rob Kinley, who was a research scientist at CSIRO in Australia, had been doing some observational work. Um, uh, a farmer had ob- observed that his cattle on the herd, those that wandered onto the beach and started eating seaweed, seemed to be a little bit healthier and a little bit different from the others. And that was Rob's uh, insight to look and say, maybe was there some nutritional benefit? What was going on here? And after much research, discovered that um, they were eating a variety of seaweed, asparagopsis. And in the asparagopsis, there is a compound that's been identified called bromoform. And it seems to be that the bromoform is able to change the biochemical pathways in the rumen and change the ruminants from producing as a final product methane probably producing short-chain fatty acids, and so you have cows that don't burp. And they don't burp methane, and methane is 86 times more uh, detrimental to the climate as carbon dioxide, and so you could have carbon-neutral cows, and that was sort of the, the thinking at the time. And That's so really interesting. That, sorry to cut you off, but that was yeah. interesting because I didn't realise that it was because they, they were already t- trying and they just seemed to enjoy the flavor it was they were not only enjoying the flavor they were they were healthier and then they were healthier because they didn't emit ethan so i think the word health i'm not i don't think we've quite gone down that avenue yet but we've certainly noticed that the observation so the focus that our company have is is uniquely on the methane reduction so is there potentially a health benefit uh, you know all that kind of discussion that is work that still needs to get done but our focus is the fact that feeding small quantities of this material daily to ruminants can make a significant impact on uh, the methane emissions. And at COP26, uh, just that happened in Glasgow in November uh, this year, the first time there was big discussions around what they're calling enteric fermentation, which is if you look at where all methane comes from, it comes from fracking, comes from the oil and gas industry when it just gets emitted uh, naturally as they, as they do their oil and drilling. But 27% of methane comes from uh, enteric fermentation. And so that is the focus of looking to see how can we help the 1.5 billion ruminants in the world? Wow. How can we try and make an impact in them around the world? And so until recently, there weren't many technologies available. Um, today, there are several competitive technologies out there that all show about 30, 40, 50% reduction in methane. Asparagopsis, um, and there's two species, Armata and Taxiformis. Um, Of these two species, they're the only ones that have really been able to show 90, 95%, and even in a couple of slides, 100% reduction uh, in methane reduction. So it's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, so I wouldn't, maybe the 100% was, was one small study. So... So CH4 Global's mission today is to now take that, we talk about basic research and turning that into a commercial product. CH4 is one of the first companies in the world 
that will be commercializing at scale asparagopsis to be able to be sold to farmers so that they can add that to their feed um, to reduce methane. Fantastic. Hopefully, the, the farmers will then be able to offset any tax burdens they may get from individual countries by having carbon credits. So you can imagine the whole lifestyle that they get carbon credits, that's an offset, they therefore aren't penalized from a tax point of view. So we're not quite at that part yet. Today we're out growing, we're creating nurseries and hatcheries and nurseries for the seaweed. We're putting it out in lines in Australia and New Zealand. Where it's a native species, we can come onto that later. We are harvesting, we're freeze drying the material, packing it, and we're setting up processes to do that today in both countries. Interesting. So it's so it was found in Australia and New Zealand, and that's the only place that it's native. But can it grow other places? Can it grow in Canada, maybe yes, in other colder waters? Great. Yes, it can. It yeah, it can. And, and, it, and it is found. It's found off the coast of California. You can find it off the coast of Northern Ireland. You can find it off the Azores. Um, so it grows in many places. But in all these places, it would be regarded as an invasive species. So Why? that doesn't prevent because there's a biodiversity treaty that was signed many years ago by many, many countries to say that we have indigenous uh, plants and animals in particular regions of the world. And that biodiversity, we're trying to keep that in these particular regions of the world. And so when someone comes along to commercialize something, it has to be with an indigenous species in the region where it's natively grown. And that's to prevent okay. some of this cross-contamination um, and so today, um, asparagus, armata, and taxiformis are only natively found in Australia and New Zealand. And so when you look at people, there's a couple of other companies that are looking to grow um, asparagopsis in other regions of the world. Um, they are mainly looking at tank-based systems or land-based systems where you wouldn't be contaminating the natural environment. Um, we actually right. have a, to be fair, we have a joint venture we've just started in Malaysia uh, because there's a little bit of asparagopsis grows also in native to Malaysia. And we're just understanding that landscape. But that's our focus for the next probably five years will be Australia, New Zealand. And we think there's sufficient, um, there's definitely sufficient ruminants in both countries for us to be able to make a significant impact and be supply constrained for the next few years going forward with the number of animals they have down there. Fantastic. And I think that, I mean, Australia, it does come up quite a lot in, in climate change because they there is a bit of a tussle there. They have a lot of coal that, they, that they're giving to China and they've got lots of other questions around climate change. So I'm wondering how how, how uh, receptive has the Australian government been to to, to, to the ideas that you're, proje- you're, you're suggesting to them? And, or are you not yeah, there I mean, yet? You're just they- building the product. Yes, I mean, so there's, there's a whole question around the regulatory, the ability to make the claims. And, and so just to complete the story, CSIRO, the Australian official government labs, who are the intellectual property owners, and generated two patents around the ability to, to make the claim of methane reduction. These patents were then, they then created a startup company themselves called Future Feed. And Future Feed's um, mission now is to find licensees for these for this technology platform. And so we think there's a lot of support in Australia, particularly for what we're doing. There is a, a good regulatory environment today that allows us to feed this to animals. Um, it's not being regulated as a veterinary product, any it's simply seaweed. 
um, that's allowed to be fed to animals, and we're able to make the claim to reduce methane. So as you, and, and we're doing that mainly in beef feedlots where the, the product is spread over the normal feedlots, the animals will eat it. And during the day, we should be able to reduce the methane. Um, as we go to different countries and there's different feeding, there may be different questions that come up. So for example, as we look at New Zealand, people have said, well, most of our animals are pastoral. So they're out on grass, the grass all the time. And we may not see them for several weeks or months. So how do I actually feed them a daily dose of something. Yeah. And so that's a delivery challenge we're looking at. And we're actually in the process of running a feed trial in New Zealand specifically on dairy, just to see if we can make a difference. And we chose dairy, of course, because they come in twice a day to be milked. Right. So now we're, now we're working out. If I doze you in the morning, a small dose, and you go off for the rest of it, and I doze you in the evening, can I still measure a methane reduction impact? Yeah. And that'll inform some of the future trials going forward. Um, That's really interesting. But first, so yeah. that, that must be also an, another element. I, I was going to ask next, uh, one of the questions I have is about gaps in the market that you see that maybe you guys don't want to fill, but you'd love other companies, other other startups to be filling. Maybe one of them is in this, ha- how to, dis- the distribution of your of these if this cattle feed, that would be a, an area that we could, that needs to be built or an industry that needs to be built. Yes, and I think, I think for us, I mean, the question is, you know, as you, you can map out Australia and New Zealand because we know what we're doing there. We know the partners that we have there. And then you look at the rest of the world and say, well, how do I, how do, I do Latin America? How do I look at, you know, Uruguay, Brazil, Argentina with huge herds? Um, how do we do the European Union? What are the regulatory constraints that they would have? Um, and so we're just starting to put some initial thinking around that. We only received our first... A significant uh, venture capital investment in October, November of this year. So now we have some funds that allow us to go and start looking at how we, what would global expansion look like if we were successful in Australia, New Zealand. Oh, fantastic! So that's what that fund that that round was for. That was round for the expansion. So you you're, you're proving market out, out in Australia, New Zealand, and then you're ready and set to go and push next. Where would where would the first place you'd want to go at the moment? Do you feel is that is ready regulatory ripe enough to to I, jump on board with this? Exactly, exactly, and that's probably one of the criteria we're looking at. So the ruminants are they are all over the world, right? Sure. So that's fine. So I think that the next place is going to be, uh, and and the patents are global, so we know we have the claims. The next question is going to be where is the regulatory environment easier for us to get and we don't want to be we, we don't want to go and do a registration as a veterinary medical product that would be a significant pharmaceutical type investment and we're not in that space so right. if countries come back to us and say um, i'll make it up where we haven't explored but if argentina came back and said oh yes we see this as a normal plant extracts no major regulations make sure there's no heavy metals or any toxic substances in there and we would approve that coming from australia then that might be an easier point of entry right. uh, for us. Um, you could imagine, as I said, this we're probably supply constrained for the first few years. Um, and so you might also be targeting a smaller but higher profit margin market. So we've had interest from Japan, Wagyu right. beef. Yeah, it's going to bring that up. Yeah. Well, that's, if that's where you've got to prove it, then that's fine. But, you know, that makes sense, doesn't it? I, I, I can understand that. And, 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 and why, and, why oh, sorry, I was going to ask, why do you think that, sorry, why is there this supply 
issue at the moment. We're just we're just not making it. People aren't growing it enough. And I'm sorry, I'm answering my own question. I, I know that we're not growing it enough. Um, but I'm, it seems to me when I looked at Scotland specifically uh, recently, there was they, they did. Um, I think it was the Argyle and Butte Council did a really good paper, and they got a, a, some very clever people to just go through how what it would take to turn Argyle and Butte into you know basically a a, a, um, a best in class uh, seaweed uh, a macroalgae community. Um, of, of, all, of all across the, the value chain, and they, their biggest problem was was regulation, uh, specifically about you know invasive species. You brought that up, but 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 because the, the regulation just hasn't caught up yet, and they they talk about well, we would give you a license to do shellfish, but we couldn't give you, a, and that would be what what would be covered would, would be covering your um, you know whatever macroalgae you're gonna you're gonna yes. grow. Is that the case across the world, or is it, and, and that's what's stopping it? Or are there other elements that, that's that, that's uh, that's stymieing this supply chain? Because I know that in in Asia they grow a lot of seaweeds, but I suppose they also they do, also they do. Use they do grow yes, yes. So that is what we are discovering as we go forward. I mean, for us today, we were taking we are initially using a wild harvest. So we are we're sending divers down. They find the material, we harvest it and bring it up. That is not, of course, sustainable nor will it give us the volumes going forward. Hence, I mentioned the work we're doing around a, a hatchery and a nursery. So we will be growing in tanks our own material and then seeding that onto lines that we will take out. Right. So interestingly, the best partners that we have in both Australia and New Zealand are indigenous populations because a lot of the water that they are using is part of their ancestral land, a lot of the water they have there is regulated to be used by Aborigines or by Maoris for their purpose. And so we're partnering with them to use as they go out and do abalone and finfish, their boats, if we can, their lines, could they run some extra lines in that kind of partnership? Because even, even in Australia and New Zealand, there's not a lot of water that's available for commercial harvest. We believe Probably if we were to sit down with the local governments, we could make a big impact in Australia. But as you rightly said, as you look around, you know, Northern Ireland, you go to Hawaii and you say, let's grow it in Hawaii. Well, the Hawaii government, it says we're tourism here. We yeah. don't want you know, tanks around. And if, if anyone follows some of the development of the salmon industry, particularly in Scotland, the challenges that they have when you have do intensive fishing in lochs up there. Um, so, it, this will be a journey and we need to find the right partners. We need to be sensitive as how we're doing this. Um, and we need to look at now that we have some funding and my job is mainly upstream development now. So okay. the operational teams are Australia, New Zealand, and they're working to do what I just said they need to do. Grow, harvest, freeze dry, pack. Yeah. My future is going to be what does it look like in two, three, four years. So we know that what we're making today is what we'll call version one. Yeah. Version two, version three will be probably very different. And so the analogy I like to use back to the Procter & Gamble days is, is Tide detergent or Ariel in Europe is the brand. Mm. The ingredients in that today are nothing like they were 50 years ago. Right. right? The benefit is still there. It's still the benefit. Same. We deliver it, but we deliver it in a more environmentally friendly way with better ingredients. And, and so I can see us keeping the benefit of methane reduction, the, 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 whole, the global benefit for CH4 Global, 
And potentially that gives us the flexibility that it's asparagopsis today. But I mentioned some of these other technologies that are coming along and maybe even synergistic combinations, a little bit of that with a little bit of this. Um, so we, we don't want to be tied to a particular ingredient. CH4 Global's mission is not to tie to the ingredient. It is that ingredient today. But at the end of the day, we're tied to the benefit. I see. And we and just need to that get yeah, exactly, and and that and, and there are a lot of things along the whole value chain and supply uh, supply chain that we're going to need to to go in the right direction for for it to stay with just asparagopsis. It's uh, exactly. it's, it's probably so. Would you say it's almost it, it it it's almost unlikely that it will stay as asparagopsis for the whole thing? It will it will ultimately end up as a merging of other. Uh, as you as you understand more, or do, are you just very are you very confident that it's that's, uh, that asparagus will always maintain through it? I appreciate that the result is always going to be for CH four. It's going to be rethane reduction. Do you see asparagus is always taking some part of it, or is that is it always going to evolve? So I think I think well, I mean, if you're looking at the benefit, and we're and today we're at, we can actually deliver ninety five percent or one hundred percent methane reduction. I mean, if you can deliver that with with the six milligrams of bromoform uh, that we're targeting to deliver, if we if that actually pays out plays out in real life, I don't think you're going to find a better a technology that's better than that, right? No. But I do think yeah. we might find a way to. We, so it may be we discover with asparagopsis that um, we're limited the amount that we can actually grow, and yeah. so we may have to blend it with something else and get a synergy. So for us, it's more about making a climate impact as quickly as possible. And if we can get 60% or 70 or 75%, we will start. Yeah. Right? And then we will fine tune that material. So the, the focus for the next two years and the investment we've put in, in both countries, Australia and New Zealand, is exclusively asparagopsis. Right. That is what we were doing. Now, it's my job to go and see, will it be that in two years' time? And the jury's out. We're starting doing some partnerships with some academic institutions around the world. We're looking at uh, different companies that may have lead technologies. Um, but today, or for the next two years, it's going to be asparagopsis. Very useful. I've got a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, environmental entrepreneurs looking, listening to this podcast. Anything that you see are gaps that you, from that that you wouldn't necessarily want to tackle, um, that you think, oh, it would be great if a company was out there that would just that would solve this problem for us along the way. I think. I mean, there's there's so many little problems that we have today yeah. that we're always looking. So you know, um, we wonder if we can improve attachment of spores on ropes. Huh. So once we start to see, do are we attaching them at the right the right spacing? The right frequency? Would they grow better? Is there a different material that could help the attachment? And does attachment actually correlate with increased growth? Does yeah. increased growth at the end of the day? We're trying to we're trying to stabilize this for a bromoform, which is the active compound. Bromoform is found within a cell in asparagus called the gland cell. Right. And so if you really broke it down, you're really wanting the material. From the gland cell, so you could then start discussing why am I growing all this seaweed and what harvesting all this seaweed when all I want is to get the material to the gland cell. Right? Yeah. So you can imagine there might be some work going on as how how could you do that differently? Um, I think um, we need to look at um, you know exactly what 
how to feed the animals as we dis discover delivery systems is yeah. going to be interesting going forward. Uh, we need to look at how do we understand this tank-based, land-based systems yeah, that we have just started looking at in regions where we can't grow this species uh, naturally or in its native environment. So what would that look like? And, and I remember from our renewable, sustainable material days, there was a lot of work looking at algae ponds in the US. So huge, huge ponds that you could grow and, uh, and grow, grow sort of materials like that. So that might be an area that I'd be interested in repurposing some of these and testing out whether we can use them. Um, so, so there's lots of little problems, not, yeah. not like one specific problem. Every day we sort of wake up and knock one problem down and then move on and discover something new. Right. Um, I get it. Yeah, cool. Well, that, that's that's food for thought, I'm, I'm sure. Um, you sound like a very positive guy, David. Uh, Ten years from now, what is the future of the industry, uh, of the seaweed industry in general? Obviously, I, I you're going to say, and I hope too, that CH4 is going to be the world leader at reducing methane and be a cattle feed that everybody goes to, goes for and a ruminant feed in general. What about the industry? Uh, what else about the industry do you see in, in 2031 will have happened? Do you think we'll have massive um, seaweed farms growing uh, up and down the, the the coast of America and South America? Or do you think we'll go to tank-based and localised tank-based um, seaweed? I'd love to know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm not a seaweed expert in any way, but we're, we're working with a lot of people who are. And when I talk to them, I think, that, first of all, the awareness that seaweed um, can be a vital source of interesting active materials like bromoform that does something. Uh, we know seaweed today, we use it a lot to make um, carrageenan gums and other materials like that that go into the cosmetic industry. We know that it's actually a wonderful food source yeah. in, in most, of, most of Asia. And so then when you start looking at, well, could it be an alternative protein source for the human population in general, if we could get around to that, I think the whole movement around plant-based foods and, you know, people moving to vegetarian or even vegan type diets has increased the awareness and the idea that maybe we should be trying alternative protein sources. And so seaweed could be a great factor for that. And then there's a whole interesting world of people looking at carbon sequestration yeah. in seaweed. How do you capture that, store it, drop it to the ocean for 20, 30 years? So I just think there's a, there's a, a whole community that's starting to appear to now understand that seaweed has many, many benefits. Um, and, I, and I think, as I said, it could be a food source. It can be a food active ingredient. It could be for carbon sequestration. It could be for other things. It grows super fast uh, yeah. in various regions of the world. So I'm, I'm interested to see where the industry goes itself. I think it's got. I think it's got a very bright, bright future. This industry, and it will be interesting to know which is the one that sort of turns seaweed into something that people like you and I who are passionate about combating climate change to something that's just an everyday thing. And I think it might be food source uh, as a food source, as a protein uh, alternative. Yeah. But who knows? But I, I'm just very positive about it. Um, last question: the um, CH4 mainly in Australia and you are an American company, but you're mainly focused at the moment in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, who are you hiring and what are you, what are you looking for from, uh, from people? So the first, I mean, the, the major hires we have done in the last, since we've got some funding now, we've been able to hire, most of that has been around the operational commercialization teams in both countries. So 
people to actually manage the process of building the facilities, getting the infrastructure up and running, being able to do the harvesting and the yields, the, the freeze drying, running the processes there. So the operational teams in both countries, that is where a lot of the focus has gone. As I said, I've got a limited group, a few people to look at the upstream technology. So what are we going to be doing in the future? And that's of course limited. We have brought on a couple of people to help us with product formulation, right? And so just taking a raw material, freeze drying it and putting it in a bag was never a, a was never a Procter & Gamble method of making, of delivering a desirable product going forward. So we always had other things to do. And that was the, the function of product development. So we brought on an expert in product development to look at how do you stabilize this material in a, in a bag for yeah. a year? No one's ever looked at that. You, you can make it today, but how do you make sure it's stable and still efficacious in a year's time? And that might require some antioxidants and stabilizers. And so we've got a couple of experts in that kind of field. But the focus is, is 90% operational, um, making a, an amazing product that we can get to the farmers as quickly as possible. So if you were looking for your ideal candidate for in the operational world, what kind of background would you, would you, would you want from them? Uh, they would want you running something in, in, in the agriculture industry already, or just it just means operations at a, at a scale commensurate with CH4? Yeah, I mean, at the, at the moment, the people we've been hiring have been a, a diverse group. Some, some of them have been working in seaweed previously, different kinds of seaweed growing it. Um, others are good, are just general project managers, someone who can actually coherently bring projects together. Uh, some are still technical around the freeze-drying aspects. Some are in the construction. And so you can imagine these kind of jobs will disappear. You know, we need people to construct the buildings. Yeah. But in six months, the buildings are up and done and these people move on to other jobs. So it's it's been a little bit of a, a mix at the moment. So, But someone with, with, with passion, with expertise in, in seaweed is a little bit what we're looking at, particularly around this nursery and hatchery. Um, and I think we're going to start, as we get these processes up and running, there's a lot of data we'd like to gather around how do you optimize the growth of this material? Is it, is it temperature? Is it nutrients? Is it photon levels? Is, is it, do we need to, the, do the, does the seaweed need to be stressed to produce high levels of bromoform? So a lot of work in data that's going to inform us where to actually grow this species correctly to maximize yields going forward. So no one's ever done that before. So that's a lot of the work we'll have to do. Fantastic. Well, it sounds fascinating. And I look forward to, I hope, catching up with you at some point in the future, David, and seeing how far you, along you've got, which I'm sure will uh, blow my mind as much as this conversation has. I really appreciate your time, David. This has been so. really fun. I'll put some information in the, in the show notes so that uh, people, if they've got their CVs handy, can send them over to CH4. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. No trouble at all. Thank you.